it's those moments where I've been really brave and I've put myself out there for something that actually I never thought I'd have any chance of getting or, you know, any chance of having that conversation. But it's the time where maybe I saw the CEO over the other side of the room in a moment of peace and I thought, just go and say something. Or it's the time somebody mentioned a job in a room and I sort of said, oh, that sounds interesting. Can you tell me a bit more about it? It's those tiny little moments, I think, of of bravery in those moments of not, you know, actually speaking what's going on in your head and that make a massive difference. They've opened up so many doors. Welcome to the Big Career Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti, and I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, and that leads to gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organisations. We must change this. And I hope that many of you listening to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world a better place. Thank you for listening. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. You can find out all about our work on the website and the best way to be kept in touch with things is the newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. This week, I'm talking to Jess Hegren about her report, Careers After Babies, why it's so hard to combine a big career with young children and what she has found in her report that really is the crux of the problem. Enjoy. My name is Jess Hegren. I'm founder of two companies, one called That Works For Me, which is a flexible working platform matching parents to flexible work. The other is a newly formed company called Careers After Babies, which is an accreditation for employers to make them the best employer they can be for working parents. I have, there are six of us in our family. So I have four children, all stupidly close together in age. So I've had four babies in the last eight years. So they are eight, six, a little boy who is four on Monday, and I have an almost two-year-old. Mm-hmm. Well, enjoy the upcoming birthday party. I know that's always a lot of... Work, huh? I should mention my amazingly supportive husband as well, shouldn't I? <laughs> Is he in charge of the birthday party? Do you know what? We've actually, we're doing a group birthday party with some friends from school. There are four boys whose birthdays are all within two weeks. And I'm all about that divide and conquer. We've all got enough on our plates. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And more cake for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to start with a question I ask of everybody. What did you used to assume about combining a big career with young children that you don't believe anymore? Just that I thought I could do it. <laughs> that I thought I could have a big corporate career with 600 people reporting into me, a couple of hundred million pounds worth of income, and that I could make that work alongside having lots of children. And I don't believe that you can do that in a lot of organisations anymore. And what made you change your view on this? Was it your own experience or was it what you learned as part of your work? So I was previously, I had worked in an organisation for a long time. We'd been sort of, I started in a small business and then we were bought and then we were bought again and then we were bought again. So it kind of felt like each time we were bought, I sort of moved into a, a different area as well. So it's kind of like I'd had four, four or five different experiences in within different organisations. 
In my last role, I was strategy and distribution director. I'd come up on lots of talent programs. I was named on succession planning. And now I'd had this kind of really storming career. I was the youngest director in the group in my late 20s. I was in the boardroom one day and I was asked what it was like to be a young female in insurance. And I said, do you want my honest answer? And they said, yes. And I said, OK. I said, it's it's rubbish. You know, nobody, nobody looks like me. Nobody sounds like me. At the time, I'd been married for a couple of years and I just thought I couldn't see anybody who had young children and a big career and making it work. So even by that point, I think I'd kind of started to doubt whether it was possible. And they, as a result of that, they asked me to set up the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. And this was about 10, 11 years ago now. So it was one of the first in the industry. It was before, you know, diversity was, had become um, as much of a focus as it is now. I worked with a couple of other amazing women. We set that up, we launched it, and that had been running for a couple of years by the time I fell pregnant with my daughter. And I think I thought that I would be the same person on the other side of having children as I was before. And I think I think you do. I have this thing that I always say to people that you, before you have children, like you just exist in this world and everything is as it is and as it's always been. And then you find out you're pregnant and then it's like you kind of open the door to this parallel world that's been running the whole time. But everything's different and there's just so much that you don't know. There's just so much to learn. And then when you actually have the baby, I just didn't know which way was up anymore. Like it completely, utterly floored me. It changed everything. And I I struggled. I struggled emotionally. I struggled from a work point of view. And I don't think what I'd made, I'd made a mistake in that I I'd committed to going back after five months, which I I stuck to. But I think I didn't really let work go properly in that time either. So I remember like one of my team coming down to do pay review because it was that time when the baby was sort of three months old, all on my, you know, my invitation and my thinking it would be fine. And but when it actually came to going back, it it was just awful. Like I I lost all of my confidence. I hated it. I hated having to leave the baby in a different county. You know, I was working out of the London office, leaving the baby behind in Hampshire. I really, really struggled. I don't think I spoke in a board meeting for kind of the first two, three months because I just couldn't find my voice to say. I just felt whatever I said, I just thought I would be shot down. And you know, a lot of this was probably in my head, but. I just thought people would say, "We, well, you know, you missed that. You, you don't know about that anymore. And I think my not being there also had had enabled some other sort of voices to come through. So that by that point, there were a couple of other women in the boardroom. Neither of them had young children. And they were kind of still there doing the stupidly long hours and being really present. Whereas I was like, oh, I need to go. I don't care if this meeting's finished. I, I need to go because I've got to get back for the nursery pickup. Even though I should point out, actually, my husband and I very much shared. So we, one of us would do drop off while the other one did pick up and that type of thing. So we both still got a full day. But I think in the corporate world, especially back then, so we're kind of talk, we're talking almost nine years ago now, it just didn't work. And I, I was the only member of that board at that time working a four day week. So they would all just carry on on Fridays, you know, doing their thing. And I remember stuff would come up that was in my world of, of strategy or about about kind of key accounts or about my, a couple of the businesses that I ran. And they sort of went ahead without me. Decisions were made and conversations were held that I wasn't part of. And it was dreadful. It, you know, that combined with my own um, confidence issues that I was up against, I just found really, really hard. And what it meant was that I we, we knew that we wanted um, more than one children. Now we have four, too many, but 
was we knew that we wanted more than one. And I think what we ended up doing was making a decision about having a second baby much more quickly than we would have done because I saw that as my out. So as soon as I as soon as I fell pregnant again, which happened quite quickly, I just thought, well, this is my way of kind of getting back home to Hampshire and, and being okay. And fast forward nine years. Mm. How did this careers after babies report happen? So I'll catch you up quickly, I guess, on the interim. So after I had that second baby, I tried the stay at home mum thing for, I think I did about a year. And then I started obsessing over things and I would, you know, would put everything into spreadsheets. And my mum and my husband both very gently said to me, Jess, do you think, do you think you might need something else? I think you might need some work back. And I set up, I went on to set up a platform called That Works For Me, which helps women find part-time flexible work. So we connect them with businesses who are able to offer that. And that's been running for a couple of years. But over the last sort of year or so, I found that more businesses have been saying, can you kind of help us with this gender pay gap? Can you help us hang on to women? You know, they're going off on maternity leave and they're not coming back. What are we doing wrong? So I'd started a bit more work in that space. Then at the back end of last year, I was invited up to one of the APPG cross-parliamentary groups. There's one that's themed women in work. And I did a search for some data to kind of support all of that anecdotal evidence that I had around you know, what, it, what the impact was on women's career, and I couldn't find it. So I thought, well, I'll put a type form out and I'll get a few people's data back. And at least then I'll have kind of something to draw on. And I was expecting maybe 50, 100 responses, but it very rapidly went up to sort of eight, 900. And then I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to sit and analyze this data. Quick, close it. I'll do ready. Actually, what happened was when I started reading the data, I just I was blown away by every person's honesty in that. And I there were quite a lot of opportunities in that questionnaire for people to be to kind of tell their whole story. And as I was reading these stories, I would just I would just end up crying all the time because you just the things that these women face. I think we whenever we think about the impact on women's careers, we just think about the job part of it. It's the whole of people's lives. It's their children. It's their partners. It's their confidence. It's everything to do with them. It's not just about the work. And that kind of struck me once again. And I just thought I need to do something proper with this data. I can't, you know, I can't just just fob out a paper and just say you know this is what happened I need to tell these stories in the right way so I spent I spent the last sort of two months of last year producing that paper so we eventually published it I think in the it was about the third week of January after lots of lots of proofreading help from lots of friends sent that out and it I don't I don't know the official definition of going viral but it definitely went pretty crazy on LinkedIn and it's been downloaded thousands and thousands of times I've had lots of people get in touch. The findings have been used in court. They've been used in tribunals, in business cases. I just felt the impact of it and the fact that, you know, we were actually doing something good with this. But I guess the question then is, how do you maintain that? So you produce this set of data, you know, people are emotionally reacting to it, but how do you get them to then make permanent change off the back of it? So I started working on a model of standards for businesses. So these are some minimum standards that you need to meet in order to be good for working parents. And then also finding the examples of the ones who are absolutely amazing and outstanding in these areas. And I've developed an assessment process off the back of that. So we can work with businesses to assess where they are against those standards. We produce a scorecard that says, here's all the things that you're doing really well at. Here's the things that you could do better. And here's the things you absolutely need to do better. 
and they can work towards the careers after babies accreditation. And I help them with that roadmap to get there yeah, and help them basically become better employers. So it's been quite a journey, but a massively exciting one. And I'm, I feel I've kind of reached that point where I feel good about what I'm doing. And I feel that it complements my kind of pre-baby skill set in that sort of strategy change, transformation, developing businesses. So, yeah, I hope that we can make a real impact with that. Right. Thank you so much for doing that research and spending your life. Those are two months you're never going to get back (laughs) researching this. I was really struck by the number of people who completely left the workforce. Mm. So, and even, you know, the pressure to become freelancers. So 14%, I think, in your research you found became freelancers. What are people getting from those roles, freelance roles, that they aren't getting within employment? Because surely those people are working hard and producing great work as freelancers. Why can't they be employed if they want to be so? I think it's a really interesting thing to pull out, isn't it? So if you ask any freelancer who's a parent, they will say, I have complete, utter control over my time. And I have this belief that if we're given freedom to make our own choices about how we spend our time, then we're ultimately much happier people. And I think this is something that organisations could really embrace. And I see some doing it and some doing it incredibly well, where we move to this place where actually we think about objectives and contribution rather than time, when, where's, and that sort of thing. I think that that sort of shift is starting to happen in some places. And freelancers, the reason people go freelance is because they have that. They have that complete freedom over when they work. So, yes, they'll be tied to certain client meetings and things, but they can work around school runs, around baby sickness, around partners' jobs. It becomes that choice, doesn't it, as to when you're actually completing work. And I think there's so much that employers can learn from that and should take from that, that if you give people that bit of freedom, be you know less less about clock watching, more about actual performance and input and impact, then I think think that makes a massive difference to people. What do you think stops people from that outcome-based management that you described? Why don't employers just embrace it and go with it? I feel like a lot of the working world is still wedded to this archaic notion of Monday to Friday, nine to five. I need to see people working. And it's so outdated. The stat that I often point to is the fact we're only productive 60% of the time. And if you take 60% of a working day, you know what that fits really neatly into? (laughs) School hours. (laughs) It's, I just, I feel like that bit of creativity is missing. People can't seem to let go of the, that notion of having to kind of work within those times. And one of the excuses that I often hear thrown back actually is about customers being available I mean, that some 80% of the population are parents, then, you know, it doesn't have to work that way. And actually, the world operates on a 24-7 basis anyway. So it's not like we are in this kind of nine to nine to five place that, that everybody talks about. Yeah. And I really think employers who don't take a step forward with this now are going to lose out so much because... If you think about our working world, I mean, 18th century industrialization, everyone worked crazy hours if they were working in a factory. Then when I was a child, you usually worked Saturdays. And now people talk about the four-day working week. It is going to change 100%. I'm very convinced. I haven't got data to back it up, but I am, I've am. i got a very strong gut feeling 
the way we work is going to change for sure, just by history. It's always changed. It's unlikely that it will stay stable. And so the employers were now going to stay as they are and refusing to change. They're going to be the ones where parents don't. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there have been different sort of points in time that have really impacted how we work. So in the Industrial Revolution, war, and I thought COVID would, I think it still is, but I thought COVID and, you know, lockdowns would be that next trigger for a revolution. And I think in some places it is. I'm surprised and disappointed at the number of organisations who have moved back to this, right? No, you know, come on everyone back in the office. That said, I think there's much more of a spectrum now. So we've got one end where people are completely focused on, as we said, out- outcome-based management. And then at the other end, you've got the kind of old dinosaurs who are saying, right, everyone back in, I need to see you and I want, I want you here for all hours. What's interesting, obviously, I speak to a lot of women in particular who are looking for work. And I I see now the options. I spoke to a lady the other day and I absolutely love this story. So she had three offers on the table. She was amazing at what she does. She specializes in, in employer brands. And she had three offers on the table. So she had one where they wanted her in the office five days a week. It was it was exceptionally well paid, kind of above what she was expecting. Her second choice was one who wanted her in the office four days a week and would let her have a day at home. Maybe would entertain her finishing early a couple of days a week to pick her kids up from school. That was sort of mid-pay range. And the third offer was from an organization who said, I don't care when you work. This is the job that I need you to do. You decide how you do it. And it was it was a smaller organization and it was under kind of, the, I guess, that that amount that she could achieve. And guess which job she went for? You know, it's obvious that she would go for that last one. And I hope she had conversations around salary and things. But I just think it says it all. And I hear that conversation happening quite a lot that, you know, people have much more choice. It's an employer, it's an employee's market at the moment. So people are able to push for more, they're able to ask for more. And I think the onus is on us a bit to to demand more from, from those employers and from those businesses that we're talking to. It's so funny because we talk to a lot of our fellows, you know, obviously behind closed doors about how to have those negotiations and mm. how to have those conversations. And it's so funny because they always, always takes quite a long time for them to then say, yeah, actually, no, I am going to ask, even though it sounds crazy to ask for a pay rest during maternity leave and change my jobs uh, mm. and make it go from four to three days. And then they ask and then they get, you know, it's it's quite surprising that yeah, sometimes you just do need to ask. So there's so many rich stats in there and lots of good qualitative data as well. I was extremely disappointed to see that the middle manager were more likely to leave than the entry career level professionals. That is very unfortunate if you look at the whole gender pay gap and seniority level. What do you think is causing middle managers to leave in such big droves yeah. for working parents. It's really disappointing, isn't it? So the, the stat was a 36% drop off at mid-management level and a corresponding 44% increase in admin and entry-level roles. And what the, the commentary supported happening is that women are leaving their middle management jobs either because they can't get flexibility, the flexibility they need or because they can't afford the cost of childcare to cover it. So those were the two big issues. And actually, it was making more sense for them to stop work 
their partner continue working and then them re-entering the workforce at a later date in what they would consider an easier position, perhaps with a bit more flexibility. I'm no rocket scientist, but I think if we look at gender pay gaps and we look at the fact that at the age of 30, the gender pay gets around 1% and by the age of 40, it's around 15%. And the most common age for women to have children is age 30. What's happening in that decade is that we are losing all of our middle managers. And the biggest contributor to that is having children. And the fact that we, we're not bringing women back in on flexible flexible working arrangements, it's also the reason that we have such disparity of male to female ratios at leadership levels as well, because we're not bringing those women back. through. I think the positives that I hear from some organisations who are better at this is they're getting better at kind of bringing women back into the same place on their PDP. So I know Aviva are absolutely brilliant at that. You literally step back in where you were before and any training and development is is available to you. That, and that's actually a big, when we, throughout the accreditation, we've kind of looked at the four sort of chronological steps you go for. So before you have children, your actual leave, the return to work, and then your ongoing career progress. And we have standards within each of those that look at the policy process and practice areas. And I think that whole, first of all, how do you tackle a successful return? So what do women need, which you know largely revolves around, I need nurture, I need empathy, I need understanding, I need some support. And then come that combined with ongoing career progress. So when, when do we start looking at PDPs again? When do we have those conversations? Actually, for some women, having that conversation as soon as they come back, they're totally up for. For others, they might say, do you know what, can you give me a few months just to let things settle down and then we'll have a chat about it? What's happening at the moment is that we make assumptions that because they have young children and have lots going on in their lives, that they don't want to make progress. And I think that's the probably one of the biggest slaps in the face that so many of us have faced. I know, I know I did when I went back, you know, job opportunities came up and I was a bit like, hang on a minute, if this had been two, three years ago, I would have been the first person in line for that. And yet I didn't even know it existed that time. And I think that's a real, it's another confidence knock, isn't it? That's a really hard thing to try and come to terms with that just because you've done this incredible thing of producing another human being, all of a sudden you don't have the same I don't know that, you know, in somebody else's eyes, you're not as good as you were before. And it's it's insane when you think about all of the skills that having children adds to your armory. And I don't think it detracts from it. Women hospital doctors earn 18.9% less than their male counterparts in the UK. On the rare occasion where, if you are a doctor, you work Monday to Friday in a hospital, that is as if the Friday was a day where you work mostly for free. Sadly, the picture doesn't look much better when you look at the pay gap of nurses or allied health professionals, midwives, etc. A lot of that inequality is due to parents, especially mums' careers, getting stuck when they have children. And that is why we have launched a specific fellowship program for parents with young children in the NHS who want to progress their careers. Nurses, doctors, midwife, pharmacists, non-clinical staff, etc. are all welcome. It's accredited by the Faculty for Medical Leadership and Management and there are part-sponsored places for members of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. Where we have up to 10 of those. You'll join a really supportive network of non-judgmental peers 
and you get support to develop your career alongside your family in an environment that supports confidence and courage without burning the candle at all ends. Applications close on the 11th of July, but we accept applicants on a rolling basis. Those who apply sooner will obviously be able to choose their preferred dates. Um, first come, first served. All the details are on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash NHS fellowship. So leadersplus.org.uk forward slash NHS fellowship. And any questions for me, just get in touch. My email is berina at leadersplus.org.uk. Can I uh, completely agree? I always say that even if you right now don't feel like progressing, you should say that you're interested in career progression yeah. long term. Just because if you at that moment say, well, six months goes very quickly. So if you come back and then you know you might be interested in it again in six months, you just say, right now, I really want to, to make sure I have excellent reinduction and to make sure I can do my very best, et cetera, et cetera. I'm really excited about continuing to progress my career like after that face so i think it's really important to always say that never say and this may be controversial but never say to an employer that right now you want to just stagnate because they will remember that for sure i think it's really great advice my dad always said to me never ever say no to a new opportunity Mm. if a door opens it's open and once it closes it might never reopen again so even if you're not quite sure about it go and have the conversation And if I look back over my career, I was listening to a couple of earlier episodes of your podcast this morning. And I, if I look back over my career at what those points were, it's those moments where I've been really brave and I've put myself out there for something that actually I never thought I'd have any chance of getting or, you know, any chance of having that conversation. But it's the time where maybe I saw the CEO over the other side of the room in a moment of peace and I thought, just go and say something or it's the time somebody mentioned a job in a room and I sort of said, oh, that sounds interesting. Can you tell me a bit more about it? It's those tiny little moments, I think, of, of bravery in those moments of not, you know, actually speaking what's going on in your head and that make a massive difference. They yeah, opened up so many doors. I couldn't agree more. And I really, I have adopted, you would love, and this is not a plug for the forecast, but you would love the Christian Bush episode. He basically did research to identify exactly that that type of attitude creates serendipity. So anyway, oh, so I implemented, his, I implemented his advice completely. By the way, I, I saw a poster for a choir for where only advanced singers mm. are welcome. Now, I am not an advanced singer, but of course I did because I just read the book. So I then signed up and it's been like life changing. It's been so amazing, so fun, very difficult, totally out of my comfort zone. But that's not career related. But I think saying yes to these opportunities yeah. It's transformational. Anyways, we, we should be talking about your report, which is very, very long and very intense. You can always come back from things. You can always reverse things or you can always say, actually, we've had the chat and, and, and it's not for me. That's the thing that kind of really stood out from what he said, that that little chance just might never come up again. So just take it and grab it. And I, I have tried to follow through on that and it's just made a massive difference. So anyway, that's the report. It was way too long, but there was too much good stuff in there. No, 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 it wasn't, that's not what I meant. It wasn't too long, but I'm just saying we should be talking about it because otherwise, <laughs> you know, we have a lot to cover. So the other thing that was really sad, sorry, it's not a sad report. I found that quite sad about the maternity leaves and who takes maternity leave and who doesn't. 
I don't know how long people's maternity leaves are and the pressures people are under. Can you talk a bit to that? Yeah, I can. I think it's a maternity leave. Gosh, it's interesting, isn't it? So the majority of people that we spoke to said that they would have taken longer maternity leave if they could have done, which makes me really sad to think that there are so many women out there, you know, not able to spend that kind of precious time with babies because there are only babies once. And as we all know, as mums, the that time just size by I cannot believe I'm about to have a, a nine-year-old and almost two you know I feel like I literally just had that last baby I think the other real driver is the way job protection works in this country so if you take less than six months you're entitled to return to exactly the same role and if you take more than six, six months you can return to a similar role and lots of organizations really use that we saw through the report is that the majority of women in really senior positions took less than six months and that was largely attributed to the fact that they wanted to protect their roles and then the ones that were taking more than six months I think 24% of them returned to a different role and 57% then ended up leaving within two years now one of the things that I'm screaming out to organizations is this isn't working as a retention tool so you're saying that you're bringing women back and you're putting them into a different role but actually that's a really critical point at which you're losing their engagement because they're then going back not only kind of feeling like a different person but you're putting them into a different team with a different job and you know asking them to do something different and we lose another massive chunk of women at that point and I think just the whole thing around maternity leave. The other really disappointing thing for me actually was around shared parental leave. So I've just finished a book called The Equal Parent by Paul Bentley Morgan. And he's an investigative, investigative journalist for The Times. Him and his partner have had a little boy through surrogacy. So they're in a gay marriage. And he talks about, it's really interesting when you take the gender out of it. So how what's your approach to parenting to that first year? And he and his husband took six months each. So he took the first six months. His husband took the second six months. And they just, the book's really enlightening for talking about kind of what that does for your relationship, for your relationship with the child, for your ability to respond. And I absolutely, I love it as an example of, you know, if there was no woman involved at all, what does that look like? I was really fortunate. My husband and I, from from day one, I I had the big job. And I always said, look, when we have children, these are our children. Like we're both, we're both fully involved. And he still to this day, actually, he has Tuesdays off and I have Fridays off. And that's our day with the little ones, the the preschoolers. And then the other days we just sort of share between us. But what we're still seeing from shared parental leave is that they there is only 25 percent of couples are even discussing the possibility of it. That's a quarter of us. So we're all assuming that the maternity and all of the kind of caregiving falls on us for that that first year and beyond. And I think that's really disappointing. So the, the report found a 7% uptake of the national average is two. So that it's slightly more encouraging and that perhaps that's starting to shift. I feel like we need to rethink that first year and those first couple of years and what that looks like and what, what we want those relationships to be. There's a real, there's certainly a shift in men's desire to take more of an active role so particularly in men under 40 that I think they definitely want to um, play much more of a part in their children's lives in that those early years I think actually as women we need to kind of think about letting that go a little bit more you know if you want to have that year you want to have longer absolutely great but I actually think 
we probably need to stand up a bit more to our, some of our partners and say, to, you know, what are you bringing to the table here? What are you going to do in terms of need? Because actually it shouldn't just be my career that's disproportionately affected. Mm, I completely agree. But as you say, it is a letting go. And, and I have heard women say, I don't want to give this time. And that was it. You need to find the right thing for everybody. But it, we have a structural problem because especially in professional roles or leadership roles, you end up having enhanced maternity pay, yeah. but not an enhanced share parental leave pay. And that's something Yeah, I don't know what that, why that's not illegal. I think that should be. Again, it's something we're looking at through the accreditations. I've spoken to some 60, 70 organisations over the last few weeks about what that looks like and what they have in place. And the ones that are really committing to this are saying, you know, it's equal. And actually, they're not limiting the time at which they can take them. So I know some organisations have said, well, yeah, you can share your leave, but you have to do it all within the first six months. And actually, if you think of it from a parent's perspective, that's that's just not helpful, is it? <laughs> because the baby's still there, you know, and, and the care needs, still needs to be taken. I think with actually, if you think about it in conjunction with the current cost of childcare, I know there are, have been some amazing moves by Javedi and the team to try and move that forward. But if you think that we still we still have that issue, I think there's a real opportunity for both, you know, both partners in the relationship to play a part in childcare in those early years and what that looks like. And I think there's only, there's only positives that come from it. I mean, my husband's relationship with our children is is wonderful, but he's just as capable of, you know, spending the day with them, to, you know, taking the baby out, remembering the right things in the bag, because that's how it's always been. I mean, it's a personal thing. I don't want to tell anyone listening that you're doing it wrong, but... I think there's a structural problem if yeah. we have that chair parental leave system and nobody takes it up. There's a problem with the system and also with the culture to an extent, because what's wrong with our expectations of what a mother should do and a father? I often, so when I had young children, I often speak to my mum about it and she said, well, actually, when I was growing up, I was doing a lot less than you guys are, or yeah. you, you girls, you women are doing now with the with the children. and. Yeah, I think it's a really good one. And I've got, I don't think anyone's doing it wrong. I've had a couple of women get in touch saying, you know, what you're, you're sort of, you're promoting the opposite of women staying at home with their children. I am absolutely not doing that. And I, I totally understand when people want to take more time off. And I think we all have differences. For me, it's about creating the right culture of choice. It comes down to that choice again. You know, if we're given freedom to do the things that we want to do, Ultimately, we're happier, we're healthier, we're more engaged. Our children are happier and healthier. It's about creating the right environments to enable that. I was really interested to see that one in five nearly in your survey leaves the workforce altogether. And if there was one message, I know that your accreditation is detailed and robust, but if there was one message that you have had to employers, what would it be? The number one thing has to be around flexibility. We've talked about it already, but, you know, organisations that insist on having people in the office Monday to Friday, it's, it's just pointless. You're never going to get those, those women back. I think if the report did one thing, it proved that 85% of us can't make full time working in the office work alongside having young children. And the way to overcome that is by offering employees some level of flexibility, you know, whether it is working from home, whether it's slightly reduced hours. There are so many different ways that you can flex around people that I think, you know, that's if you haven't looked at it already, which I'd be surprised in today's day and age. But if you haven't looked at it already, do. And don't just look at it. Listen to what people are telling you. I think I've had a couple of awful examples recently of organisations kind of going out, talking to people 
having all of the evidence there in front of them and deciding to ignore it and go with that they want to do because they cannot get this, you know, presenteeism. They just can't overcome the issue of presenteeism and wanting to see people. And I think it's old and it's archaic and you'll lose people. You are losing people, whether it's silently or whether it's publicly, you will be losing people because of your rigidity. As we just said, the report is very comprehensive. Can you draw out one stat or one piece of the report that moves you the most? But you're clearly very passionate, very driven. Is, is there something that that inspired you the most or, or got you thinking the most from this report? biggest thing was the, the one that I've just mentioned, I think, around the fact that 85% of women can't make full-time working work alongside having children. And I think what really came out, if you read some of the stories in there, is we're all absolutely breaking our balls to try and be great mums and we're trying to be good in our careers and we're trying to to do this. And it's leading to poor mental health and it's leading to breakdowns. The amount of women that said, talked about depression and talked about how they literally can't cope. I just, I felt like I was reading the accounts of just an absolutely broken group. There's just so much pressure to be brilliant at all of those things. I just feel like if work can just give a little bit, we're renowned for being massively productive in the time we've got. And I think when you have children, that just escalates even more. I mean, what I can achieve in 45 minutes, that's what I've got available to me now. It's just mental. Same for everyone I know. You have to get things done more quickly because you have to get through everything. But trying to do everything at the rate that everyone's expecting and trying to fit a full-time work, even if it this was an interesting thing, actually, that where lots of people never had their jobs resized. So they'd taken a five-day job and they were condensing it into four days. They were finishing earlier. And unsurprisingly, they were burning out because of that. And I that that kind of really made me think about actually flexibility has to be offered in the right way and it has to be thought about and we have to be looking at the construct of of people's roles and the time that we're giving them to do it and what we're asking them to do because we're just creating a population of mums who are who just can't do everything and I think we shouldn't all be sat feeling like we're rubbish at everything because we're not we're amazing we're brilliant so much to offer and we're doing so well we're bringing up our children and we're we're making businesses run and we want to that was the other big thing so we actually found that 98 percent of women wanted to go back to work and i think the latest 74 percent of families have two working parents so there's a need financially for them to go back to work as well you know how can we make all these pieces work and play together in a way that we're not, you know, burning out, making ourselves ill, giving ourselves breakdown. There are solutions to these things, which is the bit I feel really passionately about. You know, you just need people to have that penny drop moment that makes them think differently and think about how they can change and what they can introduce to make things different. And that's what I'm trying to achieve with the accreditation because I don't, not all of it costs a fortune. You know, some of it are just cultural changes and making things easier or women to return or, or you know changing slightly the way they go on maternity leave and some of your processes around it this doesn't have to cost a fortune but the difference you can make to an individual is is monstrous when you get mm, absolutely and that's why with leaders plus i'm so passionate about supporting people to progress their careers that's why we do what we do because you have to we're all going to be the future I, I do think things are going to change but it needs pioneers mm. who do things differently who are willing 
to fight the fight. You know, have those conversations. Because it is a fight, isn't it? If you're the first one at your level, first one to have a chat, the first one to work flexibly, so it is a lot of selling, negotiation, and so on that you need to do, while still potentially being quite sleep-deprived, or actually, let me rephrase, certainly sleep-deprived. And that's not easy, and it's not, it's okay, in a way, it's normal that it's not easy. So thank you for providing some helpful data to help that um, negotiation. <laughs> Hopefully. I love that it's been used by people in tribunals. That's brilliant. Yeah, it's amazing. Honestly, some of the messages that I've had of people reaching out saying how they've used it and where they've used it is just incredible. And I think because I didn't anticipate this at the beginning, it's kind of, it's kind of doubly as amazing. But the fact that I think it's fascinating that how many people are surprised by it, particularly men. So there have been not nearly as many men down owning it as, as there have been. But I think they're the most shocked by it. And, and interestingly, a couple of polls I've seen on LinkedIn of people saying to men, you know, what do you think is happening to women? Do you see them falling out? There is almost like a, it's a complete blind spot. They mm. see that this is happening and they don't think it's a problem. But what the report showed was how many women message me saying, I didn't realise this happened to other people. I thought it was me. I thought it was my sister. You know, I thought it was my friend. I didn't realise this was happening on such a major scale. And, you know, I've been thanked a number of times for kind of giving voice to that. Um, I'm delighted to have been able to do. Absolutely. There's so much more that we can talk about, but I've been instructed to keep the podcast episodes to a long enough for a commute or a run, but no, no longer. So let's picture a listener who is exactly experiencing, well, is overwhelmed and who is finding it difficult, who is experiencing things like you've described them. If there would be one or two small practical things they could do this week to start feeling better. Yeah. I know there's no magic, but where should they start in your view? But there are things you can do. So I think number one is have the conversation with your employer. I think you can be honest without saying I'm falling apart because you're giving me too much work I think saying you know describing the situation particularly if you're in the situation that I that I described earlier where you have reduced your days and you're still trying to do the same amount of work I think having a conversation and actually maybe you know taking suggestions to say I've stopped doing this so I could pass these responsibilities on to center you know go go with some solutions as well to try and come up with that that would be my first one so you know talk to people get help my second one would be if you're in a relationship and you're you are co-parenting, you need to be talking to that person as well about them picking up their shit. You know, you're both parents, you're both involved, and there is onus on both of you to bring your children up to set a good example and to make sure that one of you isn't crashing and burning while the other one gets to go out and live the life that they want to live quite happily. Very, very good advice. I'm sure. And also listeners will want to download the report and will want to find out more about you and your work. Where should they go? So you can always connect with me on LinkedIn. So it's Jess, Jessica Hegren. Or if you want to download the report, you go to thatworksforme.co.uk. And if you hover on either of the drop downs at the top, then you'll, you'll be able to see the Careers After Babies report. And then look out for the Careers After Babies website, which is launching very soon. I'm just in the process of finishing all the copy for it. And yeah, so that will be up and running soon. Hopefully you'll see and hear more about that from there. Fantastic. Good luck with everything. Thank you so much. Let's stay in touch and let me know if there's anything I can support. Thank you for listening today. 
If you enjoyed the podcast and you think a non-judgmental community of support would be really helpful to you, then I would love to hear from you as an application to the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme. As you know properly, this is designed to help you to identify where you want your career to head and will give you lots of support and encouragement along the way. And then most importantly, to help you make it possible to get there practically whilst being present with your family in whatever way you want that to be. Previous fellows have said it made them take really courageous steps that they never thought possible and also that they made lifelong friends and connections. In our last cohort, more than half have got promoted or got additional senior responsibility by the end of the program and that's particularly impressive because most of them work part-time or flexibly. Plus, I think they've all got quite mavericky in a good way. They're all involved in some shape or form of driving wider change for working parents, be that mentoring other parents, be that changing policy in their organizations, whatever fits at that moment in their lives. It only takes about half a day a week. Uh, Sorry, (laughs) that would be a lot. Half a day a month. So I think it's more than doable. It's been designed with parents in mind. You can find all the details on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash cross-sector fellowship. And also, if you want us to talk to your employer, to your organization about offering this to their employees, i.e. you, then let me know and my colleague Joe or I can have a conversation with them. My email is verena at leadersplus.org.uk. On a completely unrelated note, I also feel passionate about gender equality in podcasting. And I've recently learned that the top, you know, 100 podcasts, etc., It's extremely male-dominated, I think 90% male-dominated or something like that, depending on what stat you look at. And I thought that needs to change urgently. So if you want to help and (laughs) push forward female-led podcasts, then first of all, listen and share female-led podcasts. And if you think this podcast is, is good and useful, then also do share that, leave reviews and do all those things that increases the algorithm's prominence. So yeah, for example, a WhatsApp or signal message to some friends with a link to the podcast is always very welcome and very helpful and hopefully it will help us smash this particular glass ceiling in the podcast world. See you next week and thank you so much for your support.